A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. So, Andrea, to start off, can you just uh, just tell me what you've eaten here so far since you started eating without me? <laughs> Dan, where the hell were you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I actually was a little bit early to meet you, and I was very hungry, and I know we're going to eat, but I, I don't like to show up to a taping starving because I don't want to be so distracted with my hunger. So I just walked into the place next door. And it said something about sushi on the... And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just get like one sushi roll. But then I walked in and they had a picture of a rice paper wrapped Vietnamese spring roll. So I said, I'll take one of those. And it was taking a while. So I'm like, what's taking so long? But then I'm like, maybe it's a good sign that it's taking so long. And that rice paper wrap was so good. It was like soft and chewy and stretchy. So that's why it took you so darn long yeah. to get here. <laughs> to just like go like Isn't next that a valid door, excuse? Dan. Yeah. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Andrea Nguyen is a highly respected recipe developer and author of seven cookbooks, including her latest, Evergreen Vietnamese, super fresh recipes starring plants from land and sea, which comes out this week. We'll talk about that new book a little later. But first... Andrea and I met up in Alameda near Oakland. She lives about an hour and a half south, but she was nice enough to make the drive when I was in town, partly to meet up with me, partly to check out this Vietnamese restaurant that she's been dying to try. It's called Side Street Pho. Alameda's like up and coming as having some of the coolest Asian restaurants. You have not been to this restaurant before. I've not been to this restaurant, but Side Street Pho conjures up these images of being in Vietnam and going down a little alleyway that we would call a ham to like have your like favorite little bowl of noodle soup or little snacks. The woman who owns this restaurant, her name is Han Nguyen, and she comes from a family that started one of um, the oldest and earliest Vietnamese restaurants in Southern California's little Saigon community. And she's changing it up here at this restaurant, and I wanted to see what the heck she was doing for modern Vietnamese food. All right. Well, I'm excited. Now you got me excited. Andrea's desire to try Side Street Fuzz's more modern take on Vietnamese food says a lot about the philosophy that guides so much of her work. She summarized that philosophy soon after we sat down. We can revere and respect what our parents taught us, but we don't always have to cook that way because Lord knows my 88-year-old mother doesn't cook the way that she did when we came to the United States in 1975. In other words, we should respect tradition but not be beholden to it. Andrea's first cookbook was Into the Vietnamese Kitchen. It came out in 2006. There had been a few other cookbooks about Vietnamese food written in English by then, but Andrea's was the first one that was full color and comprehensive. And it took a different approach. So many of the Vietnamese cookbooks that started coming out in, you know, like the 90s were like, preservationist you know they had these long long ingredient lists that kind of exoticized the cuisine and made people feel like oh i'm traveling in vietnam but we're here in america why can't we talk about vietnamese food in america so it was just something that i felt 
needed to be written because I, my experience as a Vietnamese person with food was not about preservation. It was about me growing up here in America and being a Vietnamese American. Andrea was born in Vietnam, in Saigon, the youngest of five kids. What are some of your early food memories? Finishing an entire bowl of pho when I was about five and a half in Vietnam, sitting on the wooden bench in one of my parents' favorite pho shops. And um, I had my own bowl, used my own set of chopsticks and my own spoon, emptied the darn thing, and my parents were so proud, Dan. <laughs> they had a good eater on their hands. <laughs> and the rest of your life was determined after that. Exactly. I mean, you're a parent. I mean, yeah. you must, you know, with your children, you must, like, sometimes look at them and you just go, that is my child. <laughs> the Vietnam War had been raging for years before Andrea was born. Her father had been in the South Vietnamese military. So when Vietnam fell in 1975, the family fled. Andrea was six. They spent their first days in America at Camp Pendleton, a refugee resettlement facility in Southern California. Eventually, an American family sponsored Andrea's family, and they were able to move to their own place in San Clemente in Orange County. Those sponsors made Andrea's first home-cooked American meal. They had one of those, like, hams that are perfectly, you know, like capsule shaped. <laughs> like a deli ham. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember looking at that and going, that is the oddest piece of meat I've ever seen. <laughs> and coming from Vietnam, meat was really like this luxe ingredient. And we didn't have it often. And if we did, it would be a very small amount for a family of seven. So here... We go to these people's homes, and I'm looking at this piece of meat that's like the size of my, you know, head, thigh, right? my head. I mean, you know, I'm a child. I'm a six-year-old. I was like, wow, that's like amazing. America's full of meat. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of uh, seeking out and cooking Vietnamese ingredients and dishes, what was that like in those it early was, days? It was, it was hard in the sense that there wasn't any fish sauce sold at American markets. Nowadays, we go to a mainstream market and you see an Asian aisle that has at least one brand of fish sauce, um, many different kinds of soy sauces, jasmine rice, rice paper, rice noodles. That was totally not the case in 1975. On the other hand, there were things that we could buy in Southern California like fresh cilantro and chilies and lettuce. And so we could make like Vietnamese style lettuce wraps. Of course now they were like seasoned with soy sauce, which wasn't ideal. And it was la choy soy sauce, which was a little bit funny because it's not really made with any soybeans. Don't get me started on that. But it's very high in glutamate. <laughs> it sounds like you're already started it. La choy is, has a certain flavor. Uh, I got over it. <laughs> but we didn't get good ingredients until my parents were able to get um, a used car for like 300 bucks. It was a Comet, and, and we got to drive to, to LA, to Chinatown, to buy Asian ingredients from Viet-owned grocery stores. So how far of a drive is that? That was about an hour and 15 minutes to Chinatown. So it was like, you know, a two and a half hour round trip. So you were basically going on family road trips to, yeah. go, gro to go grocery shopping. Totally. That was what it was about. We'd pack the trunk full of, like, dry noodles and rice paper and, and bags of rice, and then we would, you know, take it all home and put it in the pantry. 
You've said that when you were 10 and your English got to be good enough, you started reading and studying cookbooks. Why cookbooks? What drew you to them? Because it was a way for me to learn about America, about flavors and about ingredients. I didn't know what rosemary tasted like until I was in college, but I had read about it. Right. <laughs> My parents were really curious about Western food and French food. So we got a copy of Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Right. All of our Vietnamese recipes, Dan, came from these bootleg cookbooks that Vietnamese people brought over from Vietnam, photocopied them, bound them, and sold them in little Saigon bookshops. Did you also take an interest in those as yes. a kid? Yeah, but I couldn't read them very well because I was like trying to learn English. And also recipes came from phone trees. Like Vietnamese people would get on the phone on the weekends where rates were still inexpensive and they would share cooking tips with each other. Sort of like the original chat rooms. Exactly, exactly. After college, in her early 20s, Andrea put together a cookbook proposal, but it didn't get picked up, so she stashed it in a drawer. Anyway, the idea of going into food didn't seem like it was in the cards. Her older siblings had become a doctor, lawyer, pharmacist. I still had this immigrant mentality, this refugee mentality of like, oh, better do something that's like safe. So I studied banking. Turns out I suck. <laughs> at accounting. <laughs> so after a couple years in banking, Andrea applied to a year-long fellowship in Hong Kong to study Mandarin. She got in, and that was her escape hatch from the career she hated. When I came back, I was like, you know what? I've done all the things that my parents expected me to do, and they're not giving me grief, and I'm just going to go for it and see if I can do this, have a career in food. And I had no idea what it meant. Andrea did a brief stint cooking in a restaurant, which she quickly realized wasn't for her. But she had another idea. But I also, in the back of my mind, wanted to write about food and present Vietnamese food that reflected my experience. And I felt like my experience is really of a next generation. We have one foot in old traditions, but we also are looking forward to modernity and new twists and the evolution of, of Vietnamese cuisine. Hi. I'm Dan. Nice to meet you. At this point, the owner of the restaurant where Andrea and I are about to have lunch comes to our table. Her name is Han Nguyen. No relation to Andrea. You come from like a famous line of uh, Bay Area restaurant owners. Is that right? Uh, actually, um, Orange County. Oh, Orange County. Okay, yes. all right. Yes. All right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but my parents, um, uh, Chan Mai, Han Mei restaurant on Bolsa. They've been around for over 40 years. Yeah. And then we're the second generation. Um, and how long have you been open here? About 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So, so what did you want to do here that would be different from what your parents did? The food, the quality is pretty much, you know, the same, but just a little bit more younger, more upbeat, more modern. We have less of a menu and not like a whole book. Right. <laughs> originally, my mom came up uh, to help me set up the restaurant. And um, if I wanted to do a smaller menu, she, she supported that. See, my mother would be like... <coughs> <laughs> well, I just was curious because, you know, there's a different customer base here that you have than you would down on, on Bolsa. Bolsa is, Dan, is like the name of the main street of Little Saigon. 
in Orange County, which is like the granddaddy of Little Saigons in America. There's an interesting phenomenon that happens. People come to America from another country, and their perception of that country kind of gets frozen in time from when they left. Right. You have the first generation of these restaurants on Bolsa, which are sort of like preservation. They're like preserving what Vietnamese food was in 1975, when there was this big group who left. But over time, things in Vietnam change, and also Vietnamese Americans change and have kids and grandkids and evolve and get exposed to new ideas. And your parents' mission, I would assume, was kind of like to, to transport people to, back to Vietnam. Right. They were missing a taste of home. Exactly. But your, your mission here is different. Yes, it's, uh, it's about exposing and sharing the good food and the Vietnamese food. Alameda, when we opened, didn't have as many Vietnamese restaurants. Raising kids here in Alameda, uh, we always shared our food um, with school friends and families, and so I wanted to share that with the larger community. So, uh, final question for you now, what should we order? Our flagship is our pho. Um, right, we have to have some pho, right? Except with the banh mi pho. That was my creation. Oh, okay. So that you wouldn't find that in your parents' restaurant? No, no. Right. I wanted to do something that, you know, when people like to have pho on the go, so I put everything in the, uh, the sandwich. So it's the, it's the ingredients of pho, but in a banh mi sandwich? Yes. Instead of the noodles, you get the banh mi. That's the starch part. Okay. And then um, the brisket is nice and tender, so it goes really well. And it goes into the sandwich with the hoisin sauce and the sriracha that you would put in, uh, cilantro, onion, squeeze of lime, you know. And, oh, my uh, God. Yeah. And it's served with, with, a, with like a pho broth to dip the sandwich in. Yes, yeah, kind of like a uh, French dip. French dip or like right. uh, Italian beef sandwiches in it, Chicago. Yeah, the au jus. Yeah. Yes. That's, I love that. Andrea, what do you think of this combination? I, I love a pho good pho dip and um, actually have a recipe for it in, in my pho cookbook. Fantastic. Um, you could do this, put it in a tortilla, my dear, and make it a forrito. Oh! Like, oh. Copyright <laughs> trademark right there. <laughs> what, I, I think you two should just decide what we're going to eat. Whatever the two of you agree on, I will eat. Coming up, Andrea's story continues. She tries to become the Vietnamese-American food writer of the next generation and gets a big break along the way. Then later, we eat a lot. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation, family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy. And the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and I want to tell you about an event coming up that I'm going to be at that I hope you'll be at, too. It's a food history symposium called Martha's Vineyard Flavors. Now, as you might guess, it's on Martha's Vineyard at the Martha's Vineyard Museum, and I'll be moderating a panel featuring author Joan Nathan, restaurateurs Hugh and Jean Taylor of The Outermost Inn, Chef Austin Racine of Moe's Lunch, and Rebecca Miller of North Tabor Farm. Now, one ticket gets you admission not just to this panel, but to a whole weekend of festivities, including the keynote by Dr. Jessica B. Harris, a past guest here on The Sporkful. There'll be demonstrations and, of course, multiple incredible meals. I'm excited for that part. It's the first weekend in June, which should be a beautiful time on the vineyard, so I hope to see you there. Get more info and tickets at mvmuseum.org. We'll also put a link in the show notes. Now back to Andrea Nguyen, and quick warning that there are some curse words coming up. While we waited for our food, we continued chatting about Andrea's journey. In the early 2000s, when Andrea was in her early 30s, she knew she wanted to write about food. But she didn't have connections, and publishers didn't think there was much demand for Vietnamese-American food writing. 
So she launched a website called Viet World Kitchen, where she posted recipes and cooking tips, including some from her mom. Then one night, she ended up at a dinner party with Phil Wood, the founder of 10-Speed Press. Now, these days, 10-Speed is part of Random House. But back then, it was an indie publisher that did a lot of cookbooks, books that Phil liked, but that bigger publishers might not go for. For instance, that dinner party where Phil and Andrea met, it was hosted by one of 10-Speed's authors who did open hearth cooking in his fireplace with centuries-old tools. That night, Phil and Andrea became friends. Eventually, Andrea told Phil she wanted to write a cookbook about Vietnamese food in America. Two years after they'd met, in 2006, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen hit store shelves. Andrea was 37. She thought she'd be a one-cookbook wonder, but the book did well, and the publisher saw something in her. Ten Speed Press came back to me, and they said, you know, um, we think that you are able to write pretty good, detailed recipes, and we think you know a lot about Asian food. Andrea's next cookbook went beyond Vietnamese cuisine. It was called Asian Dumplings and covered dumplings throughout East, Southeast, and South Asia. Her next cookbook explored tofu across Asian cultures. As she progressed through her career, a mission came into focus. As she would write, she wanted to demystify Asian food without dumbing it down. As I said to her, it seems like that's easier said than done. Totally. It would be easy for me to write really short recipes. There are a lot of short recipes out there. But I want to make sure that people understand when they're standing at the stove, the description of the action that happens at the stove is very important and how ingredients come together. And I know as a recipe writer, people are going to take my recipes. They're going to go home. They're not going to follow them. Because when you're standing at your stove, you've got your ingredients. They're going to be very different than what I use to develop a recipe. So then how can I give you guardrails? How can I give you cues so that I can teach you something about cooking and about intuition. And in Vietnamese, we have this term called kale, which means intention. And that's good cooking. If you cook with intention and knowledge and foundation, then you're going to keep practicing and you're going to keep refining that. And that's not a quick and easy down and dirty approach. And that's how I learned to cook from my mother. She was such a fucking hard ass. <laughs> she was. But, but in order for you to demystify and to introduce people who didn't grow up with this cuisine, you can't be as much of a fucking hard ass. Exactly, because I don't know who I'm talking to. I guess you, you, you gotta pick and choose where mm-hmm. you're gonna be a hard ass and where you're gonna be a little more easygoing. Exactly. And so how, do you, how do you make those choices when you're writing a recipe and you're trying to persuade people who haven't cooked with this cuisine as much that it's not so scary after all? So the entry points, such um, rice paper rolls, you know, gai guong and banh mi and pho, three dishes that people know. That's how they're going to fall in love, and that's their entry point into Vietnamese cuisine. By starting with those well-known entry points, Andrea offers her readers on-ramps to the cuisine. But then she pushes past the basics, getting detailed about techniques and regional variations and even the history of a dish. Like banh mi, for example, which of course starts with a French baguette, a relic of when France colonized Vietnam. Then you add meats and herbs and condiments that fit a Vietnamese flavor profile, some of which are originally Cantonese Chinese. I can just like take this thing and I can like really use it as an entry point to like teach people like this is what colonization does. And there's like issues of appropriation, but there's also issues of empowerment because the Vietnamese took what the French brought. They also took ideas from the Chinese. And then they made this thing that is wholeheartedly Vietnamese. And then in America, 
you can take it in all different directions. So as a cookbook writer and recipe developer, I'm just trying to get you to experience Vietnamese food the way I do, and I'm going to take you in little steps. As Andrea talks, an array of dishes begin landing on our table. It's like there's a parade right. coming out of the kitchen. Everything selected by the owner, Han Nguyen, who now sits down with Andrea and me. The fried king oyster mushroom is quickly followed by a steaming bowl of beef pho, which arrives at the table fully loaded. Okay, so we've got your, our tendon here. We've got our book tripe. We've got our um, brisket. And this is uh, flank. So there's like a rough flank that's like super doopy, chewy, crunchy. Oh, my God. And like that another is... Another bowl of things just came out. Yeah. Bún so, riu, huh? No, this is bún bò huê. Oh, bún bò huê? Oh, yes. Okay. And uh, this is for the huê uh, region. This is my wife's favorite Vietnamese dish. Try the uh, bún bò huê, the BBH, while it's hot. Yes, ma'am. Bún bò huê has thicker rice noodles than pho with braised beef shank, sliced pork loaf, cubed blood sausage, and a rich lemongrass beef broth. It's aromatic, a little spicy, and extremely savory. Yes. So there's fermented shrimp paste in here. Yes. And that's what gives it umami. It's like a stealth ingredient. Oh my gosh, there's more food coming. What's this now? This is the bansel, the sizzling. Bonseo is a crepe filled with pork, shrimp, savory mung bean, crunchy, fresh bean sprouts. And that crepe's made with rice flour, so it's extra crispy. So when you cut into it, you hear the crunch. But that's really important for bonseo. If you get a, a soft, smooshy bonseo, that's not bonseo. You hear that crisp? But wait, this crispy crepe isn't quite ready to be eaten yet. So you wrap it up in lettuce. With oh, you wrap it in lettuce. And then you dippity-do it. Oh, dippity-do. Yeah. In nook-dum. And so this is that thing of like sort of, you know, balancing the rich food with lots of fresh produce so that you get textures, you get flavors. You can vary every single bite with the herbs. Right. That's genius. I love wrapping things in other things. I know. Well, it's like... <laughs> It's like a wrap within a wrap, right? You know? And then you like it's a wrap of a wrap of a wrap. Next up, the bun mi pho. All right, I'm going in on the full dip. Mmm. I'm gonna need a lot of napkins. This is messy. Oh my god. Oh, there we go. The richness. I mean, tell me about this broth because that's to me that's the star. Yeah. So our broth is made with a hundred percent bone. We simmer it for at least 36 hours. And a good pho broth has the aromas of the spices, the layers of flavors. There should be a little fat too. Yeah, you can see it glistening on the the surface of the broth. You see the the little fat bubbles. When I serve my broth, I always remind my cooks to add a little bit, just a tiny, a few drops of the fat layer on top. I've heard that in Vietnam you can request that. Yes. Here you can request it too, and so it's called nuk bao, and it is literally um, fatty liquid. (laughs) (laughs) I like a side of fatty liquid, please. The role that you have gravitated towards in your career is one of a translator. Yes. 
I do translate. To an audience that may not be as familiar with it as you are. Correct. Why do you think you were drawn to that specific role? Because when I was growing up, I was eating this wonderful food that my mother prepared at home. And I knew that um, my American friends would never understand it. And it was kind of painful not to like be able to like freely share my experience with them. And so I always thought to myself, well, how can I present my true experience? And I can do that as a Vietnamese person in America. And I figured that food was a way to do that. One of the things that I hear a younger generation of cookbook authors talk about showcasing especially East Asian and South Asian foods, there's this idea of like, I'm doing this for us, quote unquote. You know, like us meaning their community and people who grew up with eating the same kinds of foods. So I'm not going to translate every word and I'm not going to explain every step because I'm going to assume a basic level of knowledge. I'm not going to assume that all of my readers are white people of European descent who don't know anything about this. But it seems like that hasn't been your approach. It hasn't, because when I started writing cookbooks, my people were not quite there with me. I mean, I, I knew that if I was going to have a career in food, I wasn't just writing for Vietnamese people. Vietnamese people just weren't buying books in English. I didn't apologize for certain things. I, I, used, I called for fermented shrimp paste in my bún bò hue. You know, and I wasn't going to make puff pastry from scratch, but I used Pepperidge Farm with a book such as Vietnamese Food Any Day. Right, that's one of your cookbooks. Which is a book about making Vietnamese food totally based upon ingredients from the grocery store. So it's like, you don't have to step foot into an Asian market. And when I that book came out, I was sort of concerned, like, were people were going to call me on the fact that I wasn't having them go into an Asian market. But I remember having conversations with Asian Americans and they would lean in and they would whisper, do I have to go to an Asian market? And I said, no. And they said, oh, thank you. Because we want to be normalized into this culture. And I think that until we have, you know, people who are willing to say, you know what, anybody can cook this food. It's normal, it's good. That's where we want to be. We don't need to drag people all the time into our community. It's great to support the community economically, and we do that too, but America is a huge place, and I think that we have to make room for a lot of people with a lot of different interests. And to say, well, I'm doing this for my community, my community is everywhere. To be clear, Andrea loves a lot of the books by the next generation of cookbook authors, and she's helped pave the way for many of them. She's glad to see a lot of the changes that have come about in recent years in other people's books and her own. So, for example, when we write cookbooks nowadays, like if I have multiple languages in a recipe title, in the past, the English name of a recipe would always go first, first line. Now, it's like, does it go on the first line or does it go on the second line? And what language do you put first on top? Today, when Andrea titles recipes, she calls a dish by its Vietnamese name and writes it complete with accent marks. Then includes the English translation of the name and tells you it's okay to use Pepperidge Farm puff pastry. As she says, demystifying without dumbing down. 
Andrea continues this approach in her latest cookbook, Evergreen Vietnamese. It's a vegetable-forward cookbook inspired by her own desire to eat more vegetables after some recent health issues. While there are a lot of vegetarian recipes in the book, there are also some that include meat. And one thing that I love that kind of flips typical recipes on their head, for some of the vegetarian recipes, Andrea offers you the option of substituting in meat. So rather than making meat the default, in some recipes, vegetarian's the default, and meat is an option. When I proposed this book, I just wanted to be a book about Vietnamese ways with vegetables, vegetable-centric book. And my publisher said, well, well, we can really sell a vegan or vegetarian Vietnamese book. And I said, well, I can write that book, but I'm not really going to be very good at repping it because I am not vegetarian. I eat a low meat, high vegetable diet, and that's really about the roots of Vietnamese cooking. And I want to spotlight that, but in like more like modern ways. As Andrea started eating an even more veggie-centric diet in recent years, she talked about it with her mother. And my mom says to me, that's how we ate in Vietnam. If there was a stir-fry, she said, I would tell the cook to go and buy 10 ounces of protein for a family of seven. It's not that much. And she said, you know, meat was really expensive in Vietnam. Tell me about the steamed banh mi lettuce wraps. Oh, Andrea. Oh, so banh mi hấp chai. Banh mi, it, it seems like banh mi innovation is a theme here of this meal. You're both banh mi innovators. So um, banh mi hấp is something that I grew up eating. Um, and my mom would just get like a um, French baguette from the supermarket and she would let it go stale and then she would cut it up and steam it and put like scallion oil on top of it and it was so damn good and we stopped eating it because she was just like it's like kids food but what i realized is that over the years that dish has changed and so now there's like meat that's added to it along with the scallion oil and then there's like peanuts and fried shallots sometimes this is how it's changed in vietnam Yes, and it's wrapped in lettuce and dipped in nuk jum dipping sauce. I told my mom about it. I'm like, man, guess what? You know, I'm like, I'm again, you know, I'm like that 12-year-old, 10-year-old kid. I'm like, mom, guess what? I ate this really good thing. And she looks at me and she goes, huh. (laughs) Because she's still thinking about how beautiful that pure, soft bread with the scallion oil that she enjoyed in 1954 of her youth. So when Andrea was a kid, Bun Mi Hup was a simple dish of steamed bread with scallion oil that her mom made for her. In the decades since they left Vietnam, the dish evolved there and became more elaborate. People added ground meat, peanuts, fried shallots. Andrea saw this evolution in Vietnam and it inspired her to evolve again. She made a vegetarian version of the more modern version for her new cookbook. I make these umami tofu crumbles, which is my fake meat that I use to fake the texture and the umami of pork, because that's like the meat of Vietnamese food. And if you don't have that, then I offer a substitute, jicama and carrot. There's mushroom in there too for umami. These banh mi lettuce wraps are a perfect example of the conversation between Vietnamese food in Vietnam and Vietnamese food in America. And Andrea is right in the middle of that conversation. You talked earlier about how you kind of feel like you you developed this role as a translator. How has doing that work now, as you look back on it, changed how you think about yourself? 
And I remember when my first book came out, a friend of mine from high school, who was like one of my closest friends, he called me up and he said, I had no idea that was going on at your house. Like that, the cooking, you know, like, like the stuff being wrapped in banana leaves. My parents, they bought their first home because they saw this banana tree outside and they're like, oh, that's just like Vietnam because in Vietnam, every house has to have a banana tree. <laughs> and then they would, my mom would send my brother out with a machete to like cut down <laughs> banana leaves. You right. know, we're living in like the suburbs of St. Clement. <laughs> right, right. And I didn't put any of that into the book, but I think that if I were writing that book now in 2023, that would totally go into the book because that's really my experience. So when we talk about like no apologies and about young people presenting themselves, who they are and their experience, if I were to dial back the clock and I were to rewrite my first book, that would be the person that I present. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that doing this work over the years has made you more comfortable being yourself. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, but. no, it, it has. And I think that, you know, even in cooking, people say that you become your best cook or you, you really realize that you know what you're doing in the kitchen when you're in your 40s or your 50s. Totally true. I have so much more confidence now as a middle-aged woman with who I am and my writing. I, you know, have nothing to hide because it's before I think that I was always trying to be good and dutiful and it's okay. Lightning's not going to strike. And I think that that's a place that um, I didn't know that I would get to or how nice it would be to be in that position in your life. Vietnam is a place that I identify with, but but I know that I couldn't live there. Um, but I have made a life for myself here in America, and yeah, we're we're not going home. This is our house. This is our home. That's Andrea Nguyen. She's the author of many cookbooks, including her latest, Evergreen Vietnamese, Super Fresh Recipes Starring Plants from Land and Sea, which comes out this week. Get it. Find out why Andrea is one of America's top cookbook authors, if you don't know already. And get this, you can also enter to win a copy of Andrea's book by subscribing to our newsletter, the Sporkful's newsletter. Each week, we tell you about that week's episode. We also tell you what everyone who works on the team is eating and reading. You get recipe inspiration. You get some good links. It's fun. You'll like it. And when you subscribe, you're automatically entered into this and all of our contests. So subscribe now at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Also in this episode, we talked with Han Nguyen at Side Street Pho in Alameda. That pho broth was haunting me for weeks after I got back to New York. Thank you, Han, and everyone at Side Street Pho. Next week on the show, we explore how artificial intelligence is changing the way we talk about food and maybe what we eat. By the way, for that one, check out last week's collaboration with Gastropod about the elusive chewy texture called Q. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Editing by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Natambi Peters, living in Long Beach, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. You can start your day off right. 
when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 